Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. From the Epistle of Paul to the Romans, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. We have that wonderful text about Solomon this morning uh, being asked, you know, ask for anything, high as heaven, deep as Sheol. And I was led to wonder this morning if I was asked the same question, what would be my answer? I can't tell you it would be wisdom. I might just sit there sort of dumbfounded uh, and, and lost at a loss for words. What would you ask for? Last week we heard a wonderful passage on the subject of patience not only about the value of patience and the difficulty of it, but of the patience of God himself. Even how that patience of God can be painful to us. It was a fitting message for Paul in chapter 8 of Romans has reached a crescendo. I've known people through the years who would study Romans and simply stop at chapter 8. After all, the rest is confusing and it's too difficult, so don't bother with it. Now that's a severe mistake. But it illustrates just how beautiful and wonderful this chapter is, even as as it is filled with aching and longing. Paul is writing not only of how the Christian waits patiently for redemption with eager longing, but of how the whole creation, subjected to futility, groans to be set free from the bondage of sin and corruption. We've been preaching over the last few weeks of this vision, not just of a redemption for human beings, but of a redemption for the whole creation, a restoration to glory. This waiting is painful to us because we can envision something better, not only for ourselves, but for whole societies. We experience deeply the longing that goes with knowing things are not as they should be. Death unsettles us. Disease unsettles us. All manner of corruption in our society and common life make us long for better. I can't help but think on this Sunday of a dear friend who passed out of this life two Fridays ago. Jim Packer, known to many people as J.I. Packer, was a friend to many in this parish and is the voice behind much of our catechism. He would send me notes and corrections on the catechism, which were uh, sort of wild. They would, and I would send a page through PDF to his assistant, and then she would print it, and he would write little hand notes in the margin, and then he would fax it from his home fax machine. She would scan it and send it back to me, and I have lots of these things. And they're always full of encouragement and, and gentle correction, but also deep, deep wisdom. I pray that he will be known as a theologian, not only as a catechist, but as a theologian on the whole concept of glory. One night, we were hosting him in our parish, and uh, some parishioners of mine hosted our catechism committee for dinner, and afterwards, we opened the floor for questions with this famous theologian, and not only this, this woman's children, but her students were there. And this one student popped in with a question, and I, I remember it was this. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? And Jim spoke eloquently after thinking for a moment with deep accumulated wisdom. He spoke of the disruption and longing prevalent not only in human life, but in all of the created order. How we know that things are not as they should be. 
And he spoke of the goodness of love, the goodness of making a sacrificial gift of yourself, and how this seems to be almost impossible, so full of difficulty, and at the same time, we know it to be right. The Christian even knows that to make a gift of yourself is at the very heart of how we can understand the triune God. And at the end of what seemed like 15 minutes of being suspended in time and deep contemplation, it even felt like we were floating at a certain point, he paused and said this, I'd suppose to be made in the image of God means that we were made to be like Jesus. For Jim, all theology ends in doxology. It ends in glory. Many of his former students attend Christ Church, and they tell me that he began every class by making the students, no matter how musically talented they were or not, to sing the doxology, simply to be reminded that theology and the study of it, indeed the study of Scripture and the work of thinking well, are all exercises in the very doxology that is at the heart of what it means to be made in the image of God, that you and I were made to be like Jesus dwelling in the glory of the Father. Listen to these words today from Paul in Romans chapter 8, starting with verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things, works toge- all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you take any one of these sentences out of context, you'll miss it. You might become a Calvinist. You might also become a sentimental Christian who just sort of says, well, all things work together for those who God has called and so on and so forth, and you just go on with your life. But that's not the point. If you take one of these verses, indeed any verse out of Romans, you'll go way off track. For Paul, and indeed for all the theology of Scripture, and all theology that is properly Christian, in fact, one could just say all orthodox theology, to be conformed to the image of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is to be made for everlasting glory. This is the reality at the heart of human life, that you and I were made for glory. That in fact, we can even say, you and I are glorious. And that might baffle us. It might confuse us. It might try our patience, especially as we look at our neighbor and say, what is so glorious about him? Or what is so glorious about her? Or even we might say, oh, he is so glorious. And what about me? It can be very baffling. It can be very trying to our patience. But it stands that what C.S. Lewis once said in the University Church of St. Mary is right. Next to the Blessed Sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Christian theology, in other words, captures a conviction about human life that not even humanism can touch. We are not the most highly developed animal. We are not simply random collections of living cells. We are eternal beings crowned with glory and honor in the blessed vision 
of God. The problem for us, as it was for Paul, is that we are so often weak. We are so often non-glorious. I love what Blaise Pascal says, we are the glory and garbage of the universe. We don't pray as we should. We don't give glory to God as we should. Our hearts are darkened and our minds suffer from the confusion of sin. Weakness is a terror to us. We see human weakness around us all the time. And the terrifying thing is that it masquerades as strength. Aggressive, powerful, evil. Many Christians today look upon the strength of many in society and say that's what's laudable, that's what's good, that's what we ought to be hanging on to, that's what we need. And it is even more terrifying when we identify it in our very selves, this raw desire for power. Paul had exposed himself vulnerably in chapter 7. And now he speaks not only of the loving patience of God, but of the great plan of God in the midst of all of this, a restoration to glory, all according to his great purpose. Paul goes from saying, oh, wretched man that I am, to saying that God works all things together for good. What is that good but glory? I really only want to say two things this day about how this happens, how it is that we are lifted out of weakness and out of death and out of confusion to glory. And the first thing I want to say this morning is something about the work of the Holy Spirit. If you are hearing these words this morning and identifying with it at all, understand that at the heart of the Christian life is a hidden and sacred reality, the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit. The church teaches us that every baptized Christian is in their very body a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwelling us, helping us in our weakness. This is what Peter was speaking about on the day of Pentecost. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will what? Receive the Holy Spirit. Paul writes that even when we do not know what to pray or how to pray, the Spirit intercedes within us in groanings. The groaning, not only in our own lives, but in creation as well, is mirrored by a divine groaning of the Holy Spirit within us. It is lamentable these days that many Christians have an understanding of the Holy Spirit that is woefully inadequate from a biblical perspective. They envision the Holy Spirit either as something completely and utterly compatible with the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, or as some invisible power of disorder. I remember once leaving a church convention in which a very contentious uh, vote had taken place, basically to overturn, overturn Christian teaching on one matter. And as soon as we were leaving, this young man, he pulled his cell phone out and he's, he said on the other end of the line, the Holy Spirit won. And I said, what Holy Spirit? Not the one that Scripture testifies to, that's for sure. Still others simply believe the Holy Spirit sows disorder. The Christian believes that the Holy Spirit is a divine person who gives life, who is to be worshipped and adored, obeyed even. The Holy Spirit operates in us to bring us to eternal glory as we await a final adoption. 
I've known many families through the years who adopted children from faraway places, and one of the things that happens in the time leading up to the meeting between these adopted children and the families is all of this wonderful, joyous expectation. A child who is an orphan knows themselves to be one who's loved. Uh, A family that simply wants to give of this love is excited to have another person to shower this love upon. We're very much in the same boat as Christians. This joy of expectation, this joy of awaiting this final adoption, this final granting of glory. And so, a regular part of all Christian prayer ought to include two very important elements. The first is to pray for the increase of the Holy Spirit in us. Several years ago, Bishop Eicher taught this parish to pray the following prayer, which Father Jonathan prayed last week. Come, O Holy Spirit, come. Come as the wind and cleanse. Come as the fire and burn. Convert and consecrate our lives to our great good and your great glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. The other thing that needs to be said in addition to that you should pray and pray daily for the increase of the Holy Spirit is that this is simply put what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is anointed with the very anointing of Jesus who adorned by the Holy Spirit went forth not only to proclaim the good news but to be crucified, dead, and risen for our sins. The anointing of the Holy Spirit stands to say to us, you are joint heirs with Christ. You are His brothers and sisters. You are anointed as well. And therefore, the Christian is rightly called Christian. An anointed human being. Yesterday at the font, two babies were baptized and marked with oil as Christ's own. Our desire for them is that they would grow daily in the grace of the Holy Spirit in such a way that they would know deeply this essential vocation of human life. To be as Jesus, anointed for glory. To be raised up for glory. To be prayed for for glory. To live as a temple of the Holy Spirit, being sanctified for glory. The second thing that I want to say this morning follows from the first, and it comes straight from what Paul says. If God is for us, who can be against us? This is not some sort of cheap throwaway scripture verse for him. He's speaking directly of the work of God in Jesus Christ to bring about redemption, saying if God is for us, then who can be against us? We must Remember, we Christians are often terrible about this. We hope, for a th- we hope for salvation in a thousand different replacements for Christ and his kingdom. Sometimes I wonder if we found that pearl of great price in a field, would we sell everything to buy it? Sometimes I wonder if we pass by a mustard tree, would we say, wow, the glory of that mustard tree. We hope for all manner of salvation. Salvation of a political sort, salvation of an economic sort, salvation of a legal sort, and we are continually, repeatedly disappointed. 
I mean, if you've watched the news at all, you know that, you know, another stimulus check might be coming, and won't that be great? And won't it help, won't it be so helpful, and we'll be able to do all these things that we haven't been able to do for so long, and, and we won't have to worry about money anymore, and all that, and none of that's true! We must remember. I love what, ortho, what the Orthodox priest Alexander Schmemann says of this. The deadly weakness of Christianity lies in only one thing, forgetting and neglecting Christ. In the gospel, Christ always says, I. He says about himself that he will come back in glory as a king. One must love him, expect him, rejoice in him, and about him. When nothing of Christianity will remain, only Christ will be visible. And neither revolution, nor Islam, nor hedonism will have any power left. Now is the time for the prayer, come Lord Jesus. The Christian is drawn through every shame, every baffling occurrence, every suffering, every trial, every sickness, every inconvenience even. I should say this, inconvenience is like wearing a mask. Inconvenience like washing your hands a bit more. The Christian is drawn through all of this by the vision of Christ who conquered death and now lives in a full human nature at the right hand of God so that where he is we might also be. And he intercedes for us. What a joy it is to know this. Not only do I have the Holy Spirit within me making prayers and intercessions too deep for words, groaning, but Jesus intercedes for me as well. And He intercedes for you. I've had times in my life so dark, so full of confusion and suffering that no one else knew about. That my only consolation was knowing that others were praying for me. Nothing would lift me up more than to be standing by the door of a church or anywhere and to have someone say, Father, I've been praying for you lately. I would always say, thank you. That's a huge relief. Sometimes that's all you have. How much more should I Rejoice to know that my Lord, in the midst of enjoying the very thing for which I was made, that everlasting glory prays for me. That the Lord prays not only for me, but for you, for this parish, for this world, for his church. Now that is not to say that if we really believe all this, if we really know this, we will have no fear. We will have no sufferings. We will have no trials. That kind of trite Christianity. Or worse, that we can act like total fools and bear no consequence. Because after all, if God is for us, then who can be against us? See how easy it is to take Scripture out of context? This is the language not of faith, but of idolatry. The gospel means not the absence of fear or longing or suffering or sickness, but the consecration of such things 
to the glory of God. The sanctification of such things through the intercession of a great high priest who, yes, works all things together for good. Beloved, that is our task, especially in these times, to pray and pray daily for the increase of the Holy Spirit in our own lives and in the life of the church, putting away all darkness from our mortal bodies that we may be true temples and to remember and not neglect or forget the risen Christ who at this very moment is interceding and working for our good to make us fit for glory. It is this that we enter into at this very altar today, an act of remembrance, a great act of remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.